hiring is everyone's priority, but no one's priority at the same time. The best analogy I can think of is it's like you're really asking someone that you've just met to, to effectively babysit your child, right? That's the sort of trust that you ultimately need to have with this man or woman because you're effectively giving them your baby to help you scale it. You're listening to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast. All right, Duncan, let's get started. The, the, the groundwork is the top talent. Top talent, how to find it, how to, how to lock it in, how to make yourself attractive for it. So but before we start, actually, one of the things that would be amazing is if you could uh, summarize what you do, why you do it for true versus, you know, anybody else, and, uh, and how did you get into doing it? Yeah, cool. Thanks, Carlos. Um, yeah, super excited to be here. If I go right back, uh, you know, and then sort of fast forward, I think always had an, an entrepreneurial spirit, uh, really wanted to, you know, see, see when there was opportunities to, to either do something. And I think, you know, maybe show my age a bit here, but, you know, technology and cell phones certainly wasn't around when I was was growing up. So I always wanted to sort of make sure that uh, I was either buying or selling things, um, you know, much to my parents, uh, you know, dismiss at times but I think really I think for me I think when you look at talent and the recruitment industry in general I think the big challenge is you know you need a laptop and a cell phone and it's a multi-billion dollar industry incredibly unregulated um, but also I think people buy from people um, and I that's one thing I've really enjoyed and I think to fast forward a little bit again the main reason why I joined True is because I've always been looking for a platform that was truly trying to disrupt the industry um, and truly trying to be innovative in their collaboration. Um, and I was the seventh employee at True three years ago now in Europe. We're 90 in Europe with 320 consultants globally and three continents. And I think what we've done is, is Carlos, is, is really focus. And I mean, you know, we're founders. So we started nine years ago, uh, you know, sketched on a Darren on a napkin. Um, and, you know, so seed in Series A is the passion and core of what we do. Now, we've taken Casper, Jet, um, and some massive businesses through IPO and acquisition. You know, we did the first leadership hire at Spotify. We've done over 50 hires for them globally now. You know, we're across 75 of Excel's portfolio. You know, and we're doing a lot of the advisory and communication pieces there. Um, and the way we set up is pretty straightforward. We, we, we set up in, um, in full stack teams. So we really try and have ownership and accountability from a domain expertise but also from a subject matter expertise. So we break that down in commercial practices. We have consumer, education, technology, gaming, media, and entertainment, healthcare, life science, enterprise, fintech, and security. Uh, and then public, we have in the asset classes, we have public, venture, uh, venture we call series C and above, so the high growth, early stage, seed series A, uh, early B, and then private equity as well. And then, and then the breakdown within there is the functional practices, CEO and board, chair and NED, security, finance and FOP, investment professionals, um, where we actually do a lot of placing GPs and LPs as well as principals in, into the uh, into the venture and private equity world as well, people, talent and legal, product data and technology, and sales, marketing and customer success. So I've, for the last 10 years, I've been doing product data and technology. I've done a few commercial roles, but uh, yeah, hopefully that gives you a, a little bit of an overview and uh, you know a little bit of a, a high-level update on True as well. So... With all that uh, capability within one firm, 
you know, you could criticize it if you wanted to take that view or cynical, probably not a criticism. It's more of a cynical view as a founder. Be like, oh, they do all these things. How can they possibly be good at any one specific thing? So maybe to dispel that myth, what in your opinion makes a good recruiter versus a bad recruiter? What is it that you would recommend for founders to look for in a firm or an individual? Domain expertise. So I've been doing product data and technology uh, from graduates to, to C-suite now for the last 10 years. So all as I've been doing is, is product data and technology. Um, and that has afforded me to look at all the pitfalls. And I think I started, you know, placing graduates uh, in asset management and investment banking. Um, I'm going to stop you there. So let's assume for a second that you have this experience and everybody's mm-hmm. giving you the benefit of the doubt. Now, the problem is you say you have this experience. The next person says they have experience the next person says they have experience. And yes, you can yeah. qualify that. How do you recommend to a founder to discern which is the relevant kind of, how, what, what telltale signs would you look for from a, a fellow recruiter and be like, that guy's good, that guy's bad? Track record. So, you know, uh, realistically, 90% of the people on this call will want to know, can you do this and how expensive you are um, when, you're, when you're bootstrapped or when you're raising early stage funding. And we have, you know, a track record, um, which we, affords us to do. I, I think our industry over-indexes pitch decks um, and oversells a lot. Um, you know, that we can talk about, you know, use Johnny and Hoppin as a good example, um, currently building their leadership team in engineering and product at the moment um, through their latest crazy valuation. Um, but, I, but I think the big thing is track record and references. You know, we're, we're certainly not, you know, we've talked about this at length before. We're not the cheapest, but we're also an advisory business. Not, you, don't, you don't have to pay for my time. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the advice we give is completely free of charge. I see Jack from Picnics on here, spent, spent an hour with him, um, you know, and we ended up saying that it's not right for me, but I recommended him someone who could, who could be able to help him as his business. And I think it's, it's those sort of snippets of advice around talent and around strategy, around diversity, around that structure that we're building these platforms to, to try and be more consultative, right, as opposed to, you know, just sending an invoice and, and expecting you know, to, to people to pay for that. So the, the long and short of it is, is, is demonstrable references. Um, and, you know, we've got a, you know, a world-class track record now as the world's largest boutique. Um, and then also, you know, during this pandemic, we've hired another 50 individuals in six months uh, and didn't furlough a single, a single employee. All right. Well, you made, you made um, a couple of points here I want to dig deeper into. One of them is the ideal customer and some that you, you think you're not the right fit for. So, what is your ideal customer and what is the most dreaded type of customer for you? I think the short answer is someone who can afford our services. But I guess what I, what I, really, what I really mean by that is, you know, all, all jokes aside is that, you know, actually what we've realized is that the, the, the competition and the war on, you know, you know, the, you know, buying cheap is necessarily the best doesn't always ring true. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to go into names and, and companies because that's not my style, sir. But, you know, the amount of times we've picked up searches that have been, you know, in the wilderness for a year, you know, 6, 12, 18 months and fill those in three months, we've we've got experience in doing that. And I don't think I don't necessarily think we do anything completely different. I think what we've done is taken a North American experience and pulled that into real domain um, and given us that ability to have, you know, partners across each of those commercial practices I told you about, and then each of those functions. Um, the ideal customer is, you know, listen, at seed and series A, the best analogy I can think of is it's like, 
trying to give someone, you're trying to, and it depends if the founders are technical or non-technical. There's often some variances there in product data and technology leadership home. But I think that you're really asking someone that you've just met to, to effectively babysit, you know, your child, right? That's the sort of trust that you ultimately need to have with this man or woman because, you know, you're effectively giving them your baby to help you scale it. Um, and I think, you know, there's a real difference between someone's wants and needs in early stage, be it, you know, that if you're an enterprise, you know, that first salesman or woman, you know, if you're, you know, in B2BSE marketplace or, or, you know, and you're in a product focus, that first product hire, you really want that deep domain industry man or woman. Um, and then in data, you know, you want to make sure you're building the right data engineering and data pipelines and data analytics, be it through customer success to capture the additional functionality to product requirements. These men and women are the rock stars of the world today, Carlos, and they are not cheap. And that's a massive thing is like if you want the top talent, you really have to be sensible about, you know, the equity you're going to provide, but also the salaries. Because, you know, as a firm, we don't work with the fangs, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix and Google because they're great hunting grounds for us. Um, you know, and 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 it's and pulling talent out of there has got to be about the right time. Um, but even in some of those big businesses, there's good and bad people in those big tech businesses because you can hide. Um, and be a smaller cog in a big wheel. So the ideal customer for us is someone who trusts us and lets us do the job. Um, but also, you know, we have to do that within the first two weeks coming up with a real couple of bullseye candidates and North Stars to really build that trust, right? Because hiring is everyone's priority, but no one's priority at the same time because you've got so many different competing demands of what you're trying to do yeah. in terms of ultimately monetizing the, the business in an early stage, right? All right, so you leverage that experience to basically create a, um, a brief that is appropriate to find them a candidate. You might audit their brief. You might say, hey, look, this is good. This is bad based by my experience. And, and then you put a candidate in front of them so that you know, they, they believe that you know who the right kind of candidate is. How do you provide guidance on compensation bans? Like maybe do you have mm -hmm. any, maybe just, the, just throwing some stats out there like yeah. um, a, a senior marketing person for a start, what are the typical first few hires that you deal with? And just give give some generalities there, just for for people to sort of have a mental number. Yeah, I think I think there's two there's two parts to that. I think largely from a, a banding and a leveling perspective, Europe is all over the place. If you look at the consistency in a director, senior director. VP, SVP, and C-suite, there's, there's real consistency in leveling and structure in, in North America. Um, and we know that because we've, we, you know, 90% of what we do at the C-suite level when we're pulling executives, especially in product, has been North American relocation. The last 12 big C-suite searches in product has been pulling that over. We're also actually just doing a piece of compensation data work with Netflix, um, interestingly, uh, uh, not working for them, but doing a, an advisory piece. Um, and the consistency in job titles versus salaries is, is is very, very difficult to nail down. What I would say is don't go in to market with an idea of a salary band. Have an idea of your North Star. But in terms of, you know, if you want numbers, you know, I think you can safely say anywhere between 80 and 120 is sensible for your first leadership hire from a pound perspective. Then you've got to think about, like, if you want that high growth man or woman, how much, you know, of your cap table do you have and how much are you willing to give this individual? Is it co-founder-esque equity or is it going to be the standard, you know, 0.5 to 1.5? Or 
or are you actually willing to really say actually we, we, we there's some real gaps missing in our leadership team and what we're missing is co-founders you know and we can use Johnny as a good example about that is is making sure that you're bringing in that talent at the right time um, to, to, to really help build that out and you know you've got to pay for that um, you know so you know we've had searches that started at a at, you know let's look at the 120 to 130 candidates six months later they realized actually they need to pay 250. Um, but I guess our platform, uh, you know, which we developed from scratch, uh, which is a talent management platform called Thrive, is, you know, you, you have access to that data and it aggregates that data throughout the search. So, you know, it shows compensation. Um, obviously, it's illegal in North America to ask what a candidate's earning. But what, what our talent platform does, and, and, and it's a dashboard um, which is interactive, is you actually see the candidates. And in Europe, you see what they're currently earning. And more importantly, what their expectations are as well. And, you know, a, a, a probably a good example is we had a, a you know, a 350K um, candidate from Google um, who had spent nine years in Seattle. He was actually um, born in Moscow, um, graduated Master's University. He came home for 150 and 5% of a company, you know, because everyone's banned and risk appetite is negotiable. You've just got to be sensible about really where you're willing to go from a base salary versus skin in the game. Mm. All right. So now I'm going to ask you to park your your true your true search hat aside, and we're like exactly. And now what we're going to do is we're going to move over to just you. You're in a pub. You're you're talking to founder, friend to friend, and these questions I need you to answer because they're going to be assuming that they might already have another recruiter. So you're basically yeah. providing guidance on that. So let's start with the first one, which is pricing. You know, yep. the pricing one's the, probably the most sensitive one at the end of the day, right? Everyone is is concerned about how do how do recruiters price? What is the best format for a founder? If somebody were asking you about that, um, yep. Adnan asked a question. Is like it's tempting to negotiate all the way down to the wire. You know, how much lower should you go? You know, he's got one at sixteen percent. Is it worth it? Does it reduce the incentive for them to work hard and refer the best candidates? Um, is there a percentage sweet spot? Just just give us some sense from from the human being, Duncan, in a pub talking to friends. You you're not even working for True anymore. <laughs> What's your this advice? is this this is e well, it's not easy for me to take my True hat off, but it's easy for me to answer outside of True because I'm an advisor in in four startups, um, as you know. So um, taking that all those sort of hats off and just focusing on the the selfish side, you want to make sure you're getting the best deal. But I think the the problem in in recruitment is it's, you know, the answer to that, there's a lot to unpick there. I think there's about five questions there, Carlos. I'll try and remember them all. But the, the one about the 16% is, you know, buy, buy cheap, buy twice is never, is so true in recruitment, but you need someone you can trust. Like you want to pick up the phone and say, you know, hey, recruiter, I need another Carlos. I need another Precious. And you want them to just have that ability. So selfishly spend time with getting to know them but people buy from people. Every time I moved to another agency, and I've been at two in, in eight years, my client list has come with me because it's the it's it's the people that buy from the individuals. The sweet spot, I think another question there was a sweet spot in terms of pricing. In contingency, you know, the best analogy to look at is if you want to sell your house, do you go to 12 agents or do you go to one that's really good, advertised on the right platforms like a Zoopla or right move? And, and, and can show you consistently that they've got experience in delivering. I think going back to the trusting, push them on their track record. Give me three references of early stage founders where you've done this before. 
speak to those founders. How was that recruiter A? How was recruiter B? How did you find their experience? Like, were they honest and open about that? And then I think, you know, if you want to invest, um, you know, make sure you're investing in people's time. Contingency recruitment's tough because it's often throwing spaghetti against the wall and it's first past the post and it's whoever makes the placement gets the commission. Whereas think about building a, a strategic relationship with someone, you know, that you trust in professional services and making sure that, you know, might be worth looking at, you know, giving someone a, a trial on an exclusive basis, but giving them a time boundary and say, listen, we need four or five of your best candidates by X amount of time. And then that way, if they build your trust, then you can build a trusted exclusive relationship. Um, and then you can look at the difference between a retainer. So actually being paid for their time versus actually just, I'm going to go out to 12 agencies. I'm going to go on all the job boards and I'm just going to wait and see. I can promise you the best candidates in the market ain't on job boards and they're not actively looking for a job. You, and, and this is where I think if you if you don't want to go with a fully-fledged search firm because of the cost, think about like what I would call polished contingency. So people that have demonstrable experience of, 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 of niche roles or actually, you know, market experience in a, in a certain region, in a certain ge geography, that's really going to help your time and spend the time up front. But, you know, the answer, again, is, you know, what part of the service, you know, and I often say this because, you know, um, you know, what part of the service don't you want if you want a discounted fee? And that's that's quite hard when you're in the business of selling your product or service for a fee as well. So would you discount your service for other people as well? You've got to think of it like, and this is where it's, you know, everyone's had a really shitty, ex oh, sorry, it's being recorded. Everyone's had a really bad experience with a recruiter, right? Because, you know, I think there's real, real estate salesmen, secondhand car dealers, and then recruiters. And like, you know, and there are some really bad cowboys and cowgirls, for that matter, in this industry. And I think it's, it's that bad experience which scars you. And it's once you find a trusted one, you never let them go. And you see, you know, you see time and time again on LinkedIn, loved working with X, loved working with Y. And then I think, you know, at the right time, you know, why not, if, you, if you're wanting to scale and you have sort of five or six roles, you know, to do, why not think about bringing someone in full time as a talent acquisition partner to take a lot of that strain away, to take a lot of that pain away as well? Yeah, I was going to actually go, I was going to go into the, the in-house recruiter. I mean, at what point do you recommend somebody to bring in? Like, what's the typical organizational size, structure, maturity uh, to do that? And then we're going to get into a little bit about some of the other questions that founders have. Mm-hmm. I think I think the danger is there you hire a, a specialist generalist, you know, so, you know, one day you might be asking to go and find a marketing leader, then a, a growth hacker, then a, you know, a VP of sales, and then you might be turning around and going to, uh, you know, getting them to find, you know, another person in HR or another recruiter. I, th I think I think the, 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 the short answer is between, you know, if you look at talent as a function and then you separate out HR, L&D and people, probably when your head counts around 30. Um, in terms of growth, you really start to need to think about, you know, you can outsource a lot of those functions now with some of those fantastic platforms, you know, much like, you know, Seed Legal, who you know well, you can outsource a lot of the, those those functions to really take care of that back office pain. So I would say around 30 um, is when you really start to think about people and teams and, and that structure. Um, and then thinking about like those first, you know, if you call them C-suite hires or, or VP hires, you know, if you really want that top, top talent, you have to go to firms that have been, you know, swimming in that ecosystem for a long time. Mm. Okay, let's talk about different ecosystems now, um, international ones in particular. And, and there's going to be like a 
sub niches of this question. So international hiring, especially now with remote workers, is is increasing. Mm-hmm. How should you coordinate a search with international searches? Is it one macro recruiter that coordinates others? Do you have multiple? How do you how do you manage that? Do you go for one firm that does um, a lot of different geographies? Um, mm-hmm. Tim Tim asks a variant of this question as hiring staff in London Berlin is highly competitive. What are locations and what what recommendations do you have to look for when it comes to finding product data and technology in terms of locations? But mm-hmm. That that question, if you think about that question, it's it's got the two parts, right? Mm-hmm. How do you where do you find these people, and how do you coordinate a search for those people? Yeah, yeah. There's there's, there's two parts to that, and I think that the first part is obviously you want to go with a firm that has a true global footprint. Um, and you know, if I can put my my true hat back on here again, you know, the reason why we have such um, an exciting we've been we've been harnessing this talent platform called Thrive, which we built us from scratch for nine years and I just did a chief data officer for our own company reporting into our two founders now that was stressful that was really that was really stressful but we've got a database now of the best you know venture and private equity high growth you know individuals across all of those domains that I talked about earlier and we've cultivated that on our own database over nine years we are also physically as as I touched on earlier in 15 offices you know uh, San Fran, LA, Austin, Chicago, Toronto, Boston, New York, Philly, London, Berlin, Stockholm, Tel Aviv, Dubai, Singapore, and Sydney. Like w- we really have a global footprint where we're actively speaking every day to the best. I'll use PDT as an example: product data and technology leadership specialists on the planet. Mm-hmm. So if you, you know, if if you're in Europe, and you know, it'd be nicer if there's more unicorns going that way than coming this way. Carlos, as as you well know. Um, hopefully there's another one coming out of this group here and you you know, I think you're three funds, three unicorns. So hopefully out of these, these founders here, there's another one coming in this fund. But I think 90% of our searches at, at really, if you want the top talent, it starts in North America in product data and technology. And, you know, I think the world breathed the political sigh of relief with the latest American decision. But, you know, what's also interesting about that is, you know, to go back to that, to that second question is, I had probably 22 candidates pull out of searches that were European expats based in North America based on the latest political decision. They said, actually, we're going to stay in America now and we're going to continue to develop. You know, people are flying out of Silicon Valley. We've just moved two executives from Silicon Valley to Berlin, another massive CEO gone from Silicon Valley to Austin. Um, like there's massive movement coming out of that, 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 that ripe talent. And then I think you've got to be sensible about time zones. Johnny's got it right at Hoppin. Johnny's, Johnny's mantra has always been, we're going to hire anyone plus or minus five hours from London, and we're just going to hire the best talent in the world, and we're going to build a remote culture. It comes with its challenges, especially even pre-COVID. There was very few successful high-growth remote teams. Um, and then I think it was Tim's question is, listen, we've been debating this for a long time. We did a lot of thought leadership on, on, on talent and, and talent pools. Lisbon, amazing talent. We just did a, a CTO for a business out there called OutSystems, a low-code development business. They hired 600 engineers, 600 in six months in, out in Lisbon. Um, there's amazing talent in Lisbon. The nearshoring stuff, Uber's got a huge footprint in Sofia. Um, Estonia's doing amazing things. You know, they built their whole, they rebuilt their whole government on blockchain. There's a massive tech hub in there. I think anywhere now, I think if you're sensible and we're, and we're having a lot of these conversations with our clients is how, how much do you really need that man or woman to be in the room every day 
given that look look at where we are now and look how productive we're, we're being as a society, I still think you need to, especially in PDT, you know, selfishly, you need to be able to whiteboard, you know, user stories, user journeys, product functionality, requirements, and come up with those those exciting things. But there is there's so many different pockets of hubs. Um, Godel Technologies, fantastic uh, nearshoring consultancy, spun up 150 engineers in six months for um, for compare the market when they were going through crazy growth. Like there's fantastic pockets of Bristol's a great hub. There's amazing engineers in Bristol, France. Um, Superlex, one of the best engineering universities in the world, um, and you know we're doing a lot in France, and there's you know there's there's very very strong engineers there. I think Berlin is almost as expensive now as London, um, and the war on talent, you know, is crazy. And probably another stat that not no one wants to hear on this call, unfortunately, the average um, product data and technology uh, man or woman um, from uh, senior engineer and above stays in a company on average from 20 for 27 months before looking for a new challenge if they are not well well paid well well incentivized and in an environment where they feel uh you know i suppose you know encouraged as well which is a frightening stat um because it's you know it's just over two years and you know how often do you look at someone's profile and think oh they're a bit jumpy because they've had three three-year stints mm. On, um, thanks, thanks for the geography, but I think you, you kind of skirted the issue on how to coordinate multiple different recruiting firms. Um, I, I have frequent conversations about mobile platforms with Miguel. He always evangelizes one, doesn't always give me a good answer every time we get into a debate as to one. He just tells me I have the right one. And, and, and you answered, I have, you just have to find the right firm, and True is the right firm. So I'm going to repeat the question. Firm is not an option. <laughs> true is not an option in this scenario. You have to give me how you would coordinate one or two or three recruiters, especially yeah. on these kind of international remote works. What, what's the best advice you have there on, on managing that flow? To, to look, are you asking for the same role or are you saying for say three different roles in three different locations? Cause they're quite, they're quite different answers. Yeah. Three, like the same role in three yeah. different, like you, you realize that there's a pool of people in Bulgaria and you yeah. realize that, you know what, there's local recruiters there probably know that it's seen a lot better mm-hmm. than, than true you know, that's debatable, but you know what I mean? So, yeah. you know, you have yeah. to recruit. How, how do you manage that? Like, how do you, your tips there? Well, contractually, it's going to be expensive for you if you if you engage with three different search firms because they, they want a retainer. Um, but then contingency-wise, you know, how would you feel if you had three different, if you went to sell your product or service somewhere and they said, oh, yeah, we're going to use two other people as well. Um, to do the same job that we're effectively paying you to do. Mm. I think I think the answer is tough, Carlos, because I certainly, if someone turns around and says to me, hey, we're going to use True, but we're also going to use a local firm and we're also going to use another firm in another country, I would say, you know, the reason why, you know, True is successful because we have that coverage. But I think there's, you know, you would have to be open and honest about, I think you need to be transparent would be the would be the thing because there's nothing worse as a, as a recruiter than, you know, especially in contingency, right, where you're not paid for your time, you're paid on success, you know, and think about that again. And I urge you to, to find someone that you can give them an exclusive relationship or an exclusive opportunity to prove themselves because, you know, there'd be nothing worse than, you know, you have a, a pool of, of researchers going and, you know, speaking to people in Sophia and they go, oh, someone's already talked to me about that role. But then that as, as, a, as the founder or the, the person who's engaged with these two two or three recruiters, You've decided not to be transparent about that. 
how would that make them feel? Mm. So I think the answer is it's openness and transparency. I've never been in that situation because I, I, I've always tried to, you know, make sure that, you know, if, if we don't have the coverage and then this is, you know, I'm sure you know this, Carlos, so I'm speaking to Uber about, uh, about, about a leadership role in Sophia at the moment and I'm telling them we've never done that before. And if you want someone in Sofia, we are not the best agency for you. But if you want the best talent anywhere remotely in Europe, then that's in our wheelhouse. And mm-hmm. I think being transparent about that as well, because, you know, that once again, it's, it's everyone's most important thing is recruiting. But it's also, you know, it's at the top of the list and the bottom of the list at the same time. All right. Well, moving to two questions from our founders, um, Carl Moritz, I've seen you um, jumping in and out because I think your connectivity, so hopefully you hear this, but how do you determine whether a given role warrants a recruiter? Is this a function of seniority, in-house expertise in judging candidates? Yeah, I think it's, I think, yeah, go ahead. I think, I think, sorry. I think, I think, yeah, to unpick that, it's case by case. It depends on how experienced the founders are. I think is the short answer. Like, have they hired before? Um, do they know what good looks like? Do they have the time? I think time's the big thing. The opportunity cost of putting time into recruitment, you know, is the reason why we have a job in our industry, right? Because you save so much time so the early stage founders can get on with doing, you know, what they do. And I think, once again, if you come from, you know, and I'll use Johnny again as an example, Johnny's not a product guy. Johnny graduated from Manchester University, as you well know, in 2016, and he grew up, you know, in, in this crazy hyper-growth environment. It meant to be a hybrid world, and then all of a sudden got thrown into the deep end of crazy growth. But, like, he's, you know, he came to me that day, and he's like, listen, I need a product leader now, a real seasoned product leader in enterprise SaaS, and to help me grow, hop, and explore the B2B2C marketplace. Like, it's about knowing at the right time when to bring in that experience and when you don't have it. And I think... Most engineering-led founders will think they know what good product software leadership looks like, but it's about making sure that you know what when's the right time to bring in a product owner or a product manager or a domain expert across consumer, across B2B2C marketplace, and across enterprise SaaS um, because they're all very different. And you know, my experience in hiring in those are you, you, they all are you know the framework and methodologies across those might be quite consistent but they're also all very, very different in terms of the different types. So I think, you know, you, you've got to make sure you, you're comfortable knowing what good looks like. You're comfortable understanding how to do that. And, you know, I've just seen a question pop up around, around behavioral um, and, 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 and I think leadership. And I think every, even more so now when you can't physically meet face to face in this COVID world, how do you ultimately trust someone? And then how, you know, how do you know, like we've, you know, we're trying to convince people at the moment to move from North America to the other side of the world over, you know, six or seven hours of, you know, of, of you know, video conferencing interviews. That's hard. Like, how, how do you really ultimately be able to trust someone to make that decision? But if you, I think you've got to look at yourself in the eyes and think, do I have the time to do this recruitment or should I outsource it to a professional? Um, or, you know, have I done this before? I think if you're a first time founder, and you think you know what you're looking for, I think it, it can't hurt to go and have conversations with someone, you know, in the industry who can give you open and honest advice. And I think that's where, you know, as you well know, Carlos, you know, I, I don't send you an invoice at the end of at the end of giving anyone advice. I, I, I truly enjoy 
seeing early stage businesses succeed. On the on the last point, you briefly talked about um, regarding the question that Pat presented was mm -hmm. around determining the effectiveness of a potential hire, especially now that you're not meeting them in person. So it's kind of a, a blend of two questions. Um, one that uh, Sumanta had about testing for effectiveness, and then Pat's you know question is around using behavioral and psychometric tests, I guess, as a proxy for determining effectiveness. And people can sometimes, you know, react kind of funny to, to those questions. What are your thoughts yeah. on those on those tools and determining the effectiveness of a hire? Yeah, I think <laughs> it's interesting because there was a gap in the market that we saw massively about, about five years ago. And with two amazing female uh, psychologists who grew up through the army in Tel Aviv and Israel, we developed the, you know, the world's first machine learning AI and psychometric assessment tool that wasn't a square peg round hole type assessment. And I've done them all, you know, that when you get your, your, your assessments and you go through the different ones, I, it depends on what you want to get out of that. I think it's important to know why, you know, obviously look at what an assessment can give you and then the reasons, you know, what you're trying to achieve out of that assessment. I think you'll get more out of, a live interactive whiteboard session out of a case study out of what you're trying to you know what you're trying to get like in any domain marketing sales people getting an understanding of how they work through the interview process like giving them a case study getting them to, the, to present you understand their communication style their skill set um, but obviously of course there might be some more psychometric things you know but it, you know, how well, in, in reality, how well can you really know someone off, you know, six hours, say, of, of video interviews? The answer is there's an element of, of trust and there's a, you know, there's an element of, you know, obviously referencing. You know, I I'm, I'm, I don't believe in what our industry does a lot is called back channeling. Um, I think you meet enough people, someone's going to say they didn't like you. Um, that's human nature. But, you know, it, it, you, you tell a lot from a candidate when you get references and you have an open, honest conversation with those people who about the references. What was he or she like? How did they work? You know, you know, talk to them about where you feel, but also have the openness and honesty if you're in early stage to talk to the candidate. I think a massive part of my journey and what we do with candidates is say, you know, hey, Carlos, you know, Precious really like this, this and this, but wasn't sure about this, this and this. How, how would you like to approach that? And too often, you know, people don't give open and honest feedback throughout the process and you don't give that candidate a chance to, you know, something could be taken out of context, you know, have that, don't have it out with them, but think about it in the real world. You're going to be wanting to have open, honest conversations with these people. So like make sure you get, you, you feel like you can have that rapport and challenge them, but they can equally challenge you because, you know, in this early stage, you're going to want these, the, this man or woman to go into war for you, right? Because, you, you know, everyone's in the trenches at the start. Everyone's rolling up their sleeves and you need, you know, that 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 guy or girl that can come in at 5,000 feet and, and scale to 40,000. So I think, listen, synthesis is an incredible tool. I've been through it myself. It's frightening, the results that they come back with. Um, and it's an open book. It's 90 minutes of, of open book questions. It gets looked at by four you know, uh, psychologists and then machine learning and AI database tool that we've developed. But, you know, it's got to be case by case. You've got to know what you're going to get out of them. And it's also a cost to the business. You know, do you how much does it end up just being a gut decision? Uh, Alexander was yeah. asking this question. Is it just ultimately after all this stuff, after all the people you've met, Duncan, is it just a gut decision in the end? hundred percent. The first interview, I, when I'm designing an interview process with, with early stage founders, 
have an informal, formal 45 minutes to an hour with the man or woman and walk away thinking, do I like that person? Forget about their talent, forget about their skills, forget about their, their assessment that, 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 a, that a recruiter would build for you, forget about that alignment. Just have a normal conversation and then start the, the formal interview process because you have to, you know, why are you all here today? Because you had a gut feel about an opportunity in the market um, and, you know, you raise funding. Um, so I, it's, it's just about making sure you feel comfortable with that person. Like when me and you first met Carlos, you know, there was this an instant rapport and a, and a connection and it's, and we've been building that relationship ever since. So, and I think, you know, if that didn't have, that meeting didn't go well, we wouldn't be having, we wouldn't have continued to stay in touch with each other. You've got to, you've got to vibe with someone, but you've also got to ultimately walk away thinking, do I like that person? And if you don't, it's hard in an early stage business. Think about your co-founders. You ultimately like them most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's a very good point to end on. Thank you for joining us, Duncan. You're welcome.